this week's host, Dixie Cochran, here with Eddie Webb. Hello. And once again, Eddie Webb. Hello. We have booted Matthew off the podcast again. Um, this is my revenge for him putting uh, Hulk Hogan's face on my face <laughs> last week. Uh, I didn't like that. I saw that and I was like, don't like that. Uh, I don't I don't think I would wear a Hulk Hogan mask. I mean, maybe if you were committing a robbery. Now I'm committing robberies? What? Well, I mean, like, you know, when, when people commit robberies, they wear like, you know, rubber masks of, of famous people. I mean, I guess. In, mostly in movies, I think, though. Isn't it like a movie thing? Okay, so if you're in a movie committing a robbery. Oh, so if, if I'm playing Trinity. Right. Yes. <laughs> if I'm playing Trinity Assassins, then I might be wearing a Hulk Hogan mask. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Onyx Pathcon game, right? Okay, let's do that. I mean, I think we should do an Assassin's LARP, and then I can just wear a, a, a Hulk Hogan mask with my hair peeking out from it and be like, no one knows who I am. <laughs> You can't see this half foot of green hair. So 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 stealthy, so elaborate. I'm very stealthy and elaborate. Um, <laughs> either way, we're not talking about that today. But I am no. getting my revenge on Matthew. Uh, uh-huh. Eddie and I decided to do a deep dive into Squeaks in the Deep, yeah. or a dive into the underneath, whatever you want to call it. Squeaky dive. Squeaky dive. Uh, so Squeaks in the Deep is, of course, the upcoming supplement for Pugmire and Monarchies that features mice and rats, mm-hmm. uh, and also psionic powers, which mice and rats have. But yeah. it's a secret to dogs and cats. They don't know. So, Eddie, do you want to tell us a little bit about the background, like why you chose to do Squeaks in the Deep, why you chose to structure the book the way you did, et cetera? Just a little like kind of overview on it. Yeah. Uh, so when I started working on Pugmire, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do a dog book, a cat book, and a mice and rat book. I, I knew that mice and rats were going to be linked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in, in, initially, I envisioned three core rule books. Right. Um, uh, three different game lines. But that kind of didn't work out. Um, uh, so when we did uh, Pirates of Pugmire, that was kind of a in some ways, a, a prototype of what, what I could possibly do with Squeaks and Deep. It was a way to kind of say, let's do some adventures, let's do uh, some some cool bits, and then also introduce two new species for people to play. And yeah. we'll see how that structure works. And it worked pretty well, actually. I think that that book turned out uh, better than I had hoped in terms of how the structure works. So I was like, okay, cool, we can template that and do with um, mice and rats. So pretty soon after pirates was done done like i wanted to wait until it was laid out because again there's mm-hmm. i have learned from experience that if you try a new format with something and if you're gonna build another book off that template it's good to see how it actually gets in layout because sometimes in layout you can envision a lot of it but sometimes things just change pretty right like you may have to move chunks of the book around you may have to add mm-hmm. books cut stuff out and so i was like but before i do that i want to see how it laid out once it gets layout it's like, okay no it's about right um there's a couple things we we shifted uh but in general i was pretty happy with how that uh turned out so was, okay cool um so i dove into squeaks after that and it went through a couple of <clears throat> iterations but the title we get landed on pretty quickly and one it's of the things such I, a good title it, it was it was it was, it was Ruins to the underneath for like a long time. Yeah, but this is better because it's it's so evocative of like Blades in the Dark or something yes. similar. So you know we have squeaks squeaks in the deep. It just sounds it sounds good. I like it. And, and that I, that's all credit to Rich. Um, in the sense that uh, he was like I, I said that he's like so, but, but this is the this is the working title, right? And I'm like, well, I, I kind of like this title. And it's like, but but you can do a better one, right? 
<laughs> like, rodents oh, of the British. underneath is it, it it explains what it is but it's such a mouthful right yeah that was the main, that was the main thing i realized and um so i i i liked the duh in the duh you know that kind of structure mm-hmm. um and so it's like like i said blade in the dark um uh there's lots of titles that would just keep coming to my mind just because it's, it's monster of the week like monster of the week yeah yeah um uh, and so I was like, I want to keep that structured. So I was like, I, I, I just kept basically finding replacing words. Um, but then when I hit on Squeaks and Deep, I was like, yeah, I liked it because it's shorter, but also um, it's more evocative. It, it gets the spooky vibe that mm-hmm. I wanted with the book across. Um, because that was one thing that I wanted to do with this is that uh, Pugmire is kind of the default for the setting, really. It's, it's what I wanted to do with the game all of the levers and dials are kind of dialed into a very specific zone. And that's pretty much where that, it can mm-hmm. go in a lot of different directions, but that's the middle ground with monarchies. I really wanted to go more intrigue and weird. Yeah. And I don't think the weird quite landed as much as I had hoped, but I definitely got the intrigue part down. And I yeah. to go ahead. Oh, I was going to say like some of the stories showcase the weird and a couple of the adventures showcase the weird really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but you're right in that I think Monarchies landed pretty much on intrigue. Right. And also, I mean, I did get more um, kind of inadvertently, but also more uh, heightened action, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like a, a Kung Fu movie style uh, choreographed action that, that was going to inadvertence uh, outgrowth of it. But I think just because my intrigue was going through the, like Assassin's Creed 2 lens, so it's like, yeah. yes, it's intrigue amongst Italian houses, but also diving off of things into, you know, hay burials because I can. Yeah. Also just because like cats. Right. Like exactly. that's just like when you think about dogs, you think, you know, they just kind of like wander head first into things and they're like, hi, I'm <laughs> just happy to be here, you know? And, and then you think about cats and cats, you're like, yes, I meant to fall off this eight foot tower and I'm going to do so gracefully. <laughs> and then I will walk away and you will never look at me again. And you like that's. Speak of this. Yeah, and like there's there's such a difference in just those two animals' attitudes, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, there are variations among all of them. Like, I've had cats acted like dogs. I've met dogs that were so nervous they could barely walk. Um, but mm-hmm. overall, the like concept of dog is like, hello, I am dog. I'm happy to be here. Um, right. And cats are like, mm, I guess, I guess I'll tolerate this. Absolutely. And that was something that um, it was, I'll say, 50% intentional and 50% unintentional on my part. But when I started looking at this book, um, one of the things I felt Pirates Pugmire didn't quite nail was the feel of lizards or birds. Because I just don't think we have the same kind of, of cultural connection to lizards and birds that we do with dogs, cats, mice, and rats. Yeah, I feel like both of them are, <laughs> there's, there's something just so primordial about both of them. Mm-hmm. Since you know they're both pretty related to like dinosaurs, right? That it is really it it is harder to connect with them than a mammal. Mm-hmm. Um, they are interesting. They are cool, and I I definitely know some people who own you know birds or snakes, and they're their family, and they love them to death. But I think that for most people, since they're less popular pets in general, it's just not what you connect with. Like right. I'm okay with little songbirds, but like honestly, some birds kind of creep me out. They just, mm-hmm. they got big black eyes and they can talk and that's weird. They've got razor sharp beaks. Like my, my, my cat has claws, but not a razor sharp beak, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then lizards are the same thing. Like most, like if you have a pet lizard, you know, it spends most of its time just like chilling under a sun lamp. Yeah. 
Like that's that's what it does. They're very chill. They eat bugs. That's pretty much what they do. Yeah. So like, as cool as they are, like turtles don't have a whole lot of personality. <laughs> um. So it's a lot harder to kind of like give them a personality mm-hmm. than it is to do that with dogs and cats because I'll, I'll, and 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 even mice and rats for the most part. Um, all of my friends who have rodent pets, you know, they have little personalities and they're great and they're cute and they they eat fruit and stuff. Right. And I think that ended up working for pirates because it was a book about outsiders. Um, it was right. a book about people who live outside of civilization and go on adventures. So I think that that actually worked really well. Um, but with Squeaks, I wanted to definitely dig into mice and rats culturally a bit more because – Mm-hmm. If you think about any kind of media talking animals, a lot of a disproportionate amount of them are have mice, mice and rats as protagonists. That's because they're so cute and so little. They are. They're and that and that's one thing that I wanted to, to, to kind of emphasize is that the you know, one of the things we associate them is that they're, they're they tend to be uh, on the skittish side, uh, and they're they're smaller. Um, and so, and we the the the, the cultural thing about mice living in holes or mice living in walls or. Mm-hmm underground uh it really maps pretty well to uh a, a horror quote-unquote setting uh because their, their reactions map well to the kids that you see in horror games their environments they live in map well and then i was able to from there also bring in the other pieces that the all of the uh pugmire books i try to extremely loosely map it to a kind of subgenre of fantasy gaming that's not culturally dependent uh, so I don't want to, do, even though some people have asked me, I don't want to do like the Eastern book. I don't want to do, you know, the uh, Arabian book. I don't want to do any of that stuff. But I want to do, there are chunks of adventuring styles. So, you know, Pugmire is default D&D, whereas um, Monarchies of Mao is much more your political, uh, you know, mm-hmm. organizing kingdoms and, and spy and espionage style. Um, yeah. Pirate, Pirates of Pugmire is much more the the exploring you know, sailing, but also just generally much more emphasis on exploration in terms mm-hmm. of an external exploration, adventure style. And so with this, I was able to map to uh, Mega Dungeon uh, with the idea that you will play an entire game and maybe never see sunlight. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that in a more narrative style game like Pugmire? So it was definitely one of those books where I had a lot of the ideas pretty much in my head, but I had to actually spend a lot of time sitting down and intentionally put those pieces together and make sure they lined up right. And I learned a lot from all the other books we worked on with Realms of Pugmire. And so I tried to bring some of those thoughts and um, impressions into it. And also just things like mm-hmm. listening to the ongoing D&D discourse around things like how races are presented in fantasy games and trying to incorporate that as well into it. Uh, so yeah, so um, a lot of different factors kind of came together with Squeaks, and uh, so far I think I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. Yeah, no, I am a big fan of Squeaks. Obviously, I did work on it, mm-hmm. but that's okay. I can be a fan of things I worked on. No, absolutely, you can. And, and <laughs> um, maybe you can uh, start to talk a little bit about um, some of the cultural stuff that we discussed and what you wrote. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the things that I was, I was hoping that we get to talk about um, since I, I, I wrote it. Uh, so one thing that you were pretty hardcore about is that, yes, they are marginalized in Pugmire and the Monarchies. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they don't have their own kingdom anymore. Right. They did at one point, as far as they know, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's lost. It is gone. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to get it back. They, they have theories. They have various, like, 
religious things and thoughts about it and stuff, but they don't actually know how to go take back their original kingdom. Right. Um, so, as such, there there are probably small villages of them out in the wild, but a lot of them do choose to live in the city to get the like protection of the walls and stones. And also just, you know, they can get scraps from everybody else and this, that, and the other. Um, but we also didn't want to make them a specific analog for a real-world marginalized group. Right. Um, there's a lot of stereotyping, obviously, about certain cultures and rats that I'm not going to go into, but it's gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we didn't want to make any of those parallels. No. Uh, there were a couple of things from previous books that could have fallen into those easily if we hadn't been careful. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite ones that I, I got to play with was in Pugmire and Monarchy as they talk about how rats are interested in acquiring shinies, mm-hmm. right? But we didn't actually define what shinies were. And mm-hmm. money isn't shiny in Pugmire. No, it's plastic. Like, it's, it's, it's plastic. So shinies probably doesn't mean that, um, which, which, which is one interesting thing. But then we talked about it. And since mice and rats are big on knowledge and learning and the, you know, 100 theories of man and all this stuff, um, we decided that shinies were knowledge mm-hmm. because of words like brilliant and illuminated. Like that's, that's how they translated it. So if somebody's very smart, they're shiny. So yep. acquiring shinies is acquiring knowledge so that you can one day be shiny mm-hmm. or, 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 or brilliant. Um, and maybe that'll help you get back your lost kingdom, you know? Um, so that's, that's part of it. Uh, they also live very communally, which is common among like refugee populations. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what they are on some level. Um, we looked a lot. <laughs> I actually rewatched the uh, American Tale movies. <laughs> oh, really? Not, not, not all the like, there are a bunch of direct video ones that were bad, but I, I, I rewatched the two main ones, American okay. Tale and Bible Goes West, um, which I loved as a kid and had not seen in many years. Uh, I also thought a little bit about the opening scenes in like The Rescuers and The Rescuers Down Under, where you're kind of seeing their society that's like above human society. Okay. Um, and like the, the uh, Great Mouse Detective, uh, obviously. Yep. Uh, so like there, there, there are all these movies that show like mice and rats living in the margins of human culture. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought like, how would that look if they were so big you couldn't really ignore them, mm-hmm. but also could still hide away from everybody? Because uh, mice and rats are like, I, th- I, th- I think we said like two to four feet tall for the most yeah. part. Um, whereas, you know, cats and dogs, like cats are probably about five feet and dogs can be up to like six, six and a half, mm-hmm. depending on the breed. Um, so like the smallest dogs are the size of mice and rats, et cetera. Uh, but like, like rat, you know, bar is probably a little too small for most dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can still hide in spaces that most dogs and cats can't fit into. Um, so they have this like communal area where they they live underground and there's probably more of them than any cat or dog realizes Mm -hmm. uh because you know they all look the same right yeah uh (laughs) and they're beneath their notice right um which is cool because one of the ways that we got to do that mechanically is that instead of getting your specific like species bonus Mm -hmm. um you pick two and you can pick from the other species so, like, just because you're a mouse doesn't mean that you can't pick the, like, rat background of, like, strength. Because maybe you were trained by rats. Mm-hmm. You could be a really strong mouse. That's okay. I almost went into my, like, Laszlo voice for a second there. That was... <laughs> yeah, because that's one of the things that you and I... Actually, we, we uh, did a few rounds on this. But one of the things mm-hmm. I think we both hit on kind of roughly at the same time, I think, was the idea that there isn't a homogenous rodent culture like there is with cats and dogs. Right. Um, so, one rat 
might be might have been raised by cats or you know may just grew up in you know scrapping for food in the cat quarter whereas another rat might live underground and just studies voraciously mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a lot of uh, situational culture that occurs especially with diaspora in general now i want to um, play a mouse who is like adopted by a pomeranian family <laughs> and like acts like a dog and That'd like awesome. and like follows the code of man that would be great and you could do that real easily with this yeah yeah so yeah, so they have they have some cultural stuff left over, but it's mostly about just finding their lost kingdom and some stuff about, you know, acquiring man's knowledge. Um, they definitely don't have as strict of a code as cats or dogs do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of a little bit more ag- agnostic in the way that like lizards and birds kind of are. Yeah. Where they're like, yeah, there were people, they were cool. Uh, I th- and then, of course, you have the cult of Labrador who has their whole other belief system because they're radicals. Right. Um, and anybody who's read Monarchies or Pugmire is familiar with the cult of Labotor. They are, you know, antagonists and a couple things. They've been around since the beginning. They are super interesting, but they're also, I feel like mice and rats are more concerned with getting rid of them yeah. because they give everybody else a bad name. Because mm-hmm. like if, 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 if you're a mouse that's born, you know, white as, as many mice are, or a rat that is born white, there are probably people that just instantly distrust you because mm-hmm. they think you're a member of the cult of Labotor. And it's like, no, nah, I just look like this. Um, which is, once again, a really interesting analog to like actual real world racism, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't feel too like ham fisted to me. No, it, it's, and that's one thing that uh, uh, we've both talked about in the past is that. Uh, I've always felt strongly Pugmire needs to give you all the pieces, but not necessarily connect them together for you. Because I think that's where you move into that line of being too preachy. It's like, okay, here are the pieces. If you put them together in their logical construction, oh, this looks a lot like problems around the real world. But if you don't want to put those pieces together in that way, you don't have to. You don't have yeah. to dig into that. Yeah, I, I I feel like when people first hit upon any of the realms of Pugmire books, their first reaction is, is, is almost always like, oh, it's cute, I can, play, yeah. I can play a pet, like da-da-da-da. And then like, I've talked to people at cons and kind of said like, yeah, Pugmire can just be a super lighthearted game, but also their entire religion is the dog waiting for his master to come home and he never will. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. Yes. That's so sad. That's, 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 that's that one Futurama episode. You know, it is yep. that everybody talks about. So it's like we don't want to, you know, like make people sad, but it is a whole other part of the book you can play with if mm-hmm. you want to. And that's that's how I feel about about mice and rats is that like you can just be cute and go on adventures in the underneath or whatever, or you can deal with the fact that you're you know in the margins of society, or you could even play some intrigue stuff because I I I said in the book there are a few um jobs that mice and rats are more suited for mm-hmm. and dogs and cats find them useful and it's it's things like first of all cleaning because mice and rats can like you know run up pipes and like dust things high up and whatever um and they're very lightweight so they're not gonna like break your chandelier by climbing on it probably mm-hmm. um and also like t- being uh tailors because mm-hmm. you know little little tiny mouse fingers can do really really nice embroidery and like lace making and stuff and also cinderella um, and also, yes, that was part of it. <laughs> also Cinderella. Um, and then th- they're also really good spies. Right. If, a, if, a, if a cat house decided to employ mice as their spies instead of just other cats, they'd probably get a lot more information. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because mice and rats, once again, can fit into weird places. They can run along, you know, the tops of doors and stuff like that in ways that other animals just can't. Right. Um, and, yeah. and the, the other thing that um, uh, you bring up spies is interesting. I, I'm yeah. one thing that was kind of in the back of my head is that the reason why cats are not as great as they could be in spies is because they have a culture of individual superiority. It's like mm-hmm. I am the best cat. Uh, and, the, and the culture really strongly encourages you to think of yourself that way. Um, whereas what rodent culture there is uh, very much is the do whatever you got to do to get by. Um, and so it's the James Bond as spy versus the Baker Street Regulars as spies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Nelson uh, Rat culture is very uh, interconnected. It's very communal. Mm-hmm. Um, they are big on sharing information so that they mm-hmm. all have a lot of information. It would mm-hmm. be strange to be a mouse that like kept a whole bunch of secrets. Um, and even even when it comes to their uh, you know bonds and flaws and things, as as other uh, other creatures have, they have whispers, mm-hmm. and it's just stuff other people say about them because mice like they're it's 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 a gossipy culture, <laughs> right? Uh, they they tell stories about each other, and sometimes they're true, and sometimes they're not, and it's up to you to decide you know if you want to play into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's that's part of what I liked about writing it though, is because I feel like a lot of times. In fantasy gaming or just in, in some of these, you know, species or races or peoples or whatever it is in general, you 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 get these very closed off cultural walls. Mm-hmm. And so having mice and rats be like one big community was, I think, really, really cool because um, they also tend to trust each other fairly quickly, which is right. which which means that it's not too hard to get a party together. Yeah. Um, I know that we we just came off a play test last week uh, and like. We had a we had a couple of weird weird rats and mice in our group. <laughs> we just we're just like okay, they're our friend. I guess we're gonna help them out um, because yeah, like I I I made a mouse character who really like friendship is his driving force. Mm-hmm. He 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 wants to be in charge and he wants to be a leader, but also if his friends are in trouble, he will put himself in harm's way. As we found out because he almost died. Um, right. But and like he's got like nine hit points at level one he keeps just being like yeah i'll fight the giant skeleton why not go but that's that's kind of how their culture is because they've had to lean on each other to survive like i would not be surprised if there are like refugee networks throughout you know all of pugmire monarchies Mm -hmm. and mutual aid societies and things like that like if if a new person shows up they're not going to show up and just starve in an alley if a new mouse shows up in pugmire they're going to be given a blanket and uh you know piece of nut bread and whatever else they need. Right. And that's one thing that um, I think you really hit on when you wrote your material is that I, uh, with dogs, dogs kind of get along in the sense that we're all dogs. You know, it's like, the, okay, you're, you're a dog, right? you're a dog. And we have mm-hmm. certain cultural touchstones that we can connect on. But then the more the dogs start to get to know each other, the more their differences come to the fore, right? Right. Um, and so, uh, and some dogs can overcome those and, and be good dogs and some dogs can't. And that's where the intrigue in interest comes from with cats. Uh, they immediately culturally look at each other and go, Oh, you're a cat. I can't trust you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have, may overcome, you have secrets from me. <laughs> right. They may overcome that. Um, but they have to have artificial constructs like houses to kind of almost force connectivity and that's actually one of the reasons why the monarchies of Mao is struggling as a as a culture is because mm-hmm. it was, it's been jammed together 
by necessity, and nobody really wants that. Yeah, uh, it's like it's like having a bunch of city states instead of like one country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with mice and rats, uh, uh, you kind of have the inversion of the dog dynamic, where is that when they first see each other, there's a pr- there can be a pretty wide gap between communities. Those that live above ground versus beneath ground, between two mm-hmm. villages, they may have wildly diverse cultures, but there's a certain level of, but you're a rodent. Um, and so a, g- a good example of this that I love from your text is that uh, the rats, if rodents are left alone, rats will slowly try mm-hmm. to dominate mice. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're bigger. Uh, they're generally just a little more aggressive. Uh, mm-hmm. And so mice are a little more obsequious and we're willing to relent and try to kind of back away from situations as opposed to escalate them. Uh, that, Except Laszlo. Like, there are wild, <laughs> there are differentiates, obviously, but I mean, uh, uh, certainly all the rats in the New York party, Laszlo, are like, oh, yeah, Laszlo's in charge, totally. Um, but on a cultural level, there's that, that's your own trend. The moment an outside force tries to impede on rodent culture, they will immediately lock shields. Yeah, it's that, it's that I'm allowed to pick on my little brother, mm-hmm. but nobody else is kind of right. thing, where like, you know, I can. Me, me and my friends can give each other shit and it's fun and we're having a good time. Or you can pick on your little brother. Or I can me- you know, mess with somebody. But the minute somebody else does, it's like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. Nope. We're going to we're gonna stop that right now. Um, because I think that's important, especially to like marginalized communities. You know? Mm-hmm. Like they might have infighting. They might have their own politics going on. But if an outside force tries to, you know, impose something on them or whatever, like they, they ha- kind of have to work together. Right. Um, and that's 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 very common. Like you will see infighting throughout, you know, political groups of, of various kinds. But then once something happens that threatens them, they have to kind of like force to work together, even if it's begrudgingly. Yeah. Um, so like even if there's a rat who's kind of like rats are way better than mice, you're too tiny. But like the moment a like cat shows up, they're going to be like, uh-uh, nope, go away, cat. Right. And again, one of those things where we don't put those pieces together, but both those pieces are on the page, is that mm-hmm. if you take that as a given and then separately see, but rodents generally uh, abhor the cult of laboratory, it's the something must really have gone bad for the rodent community to go, but not those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I think that is, in in, in my opinion, that is because the cult of laboratory pursues knowledge just like most rats and mice do, mm-hmm. but they do it without regard for the cost yep. or if it hurts other people or if it hurts other rodents, you know, mm-hmm. like they'll, they'll happily do an experiment right next to a town that might blow up mm-hmm. um, because to them, science, like science and knowledge are the only things that matter. Yep. Um, they will sacrifice each other if like, it means that they can learn more about science. So that is so antithetical to other right. rodents that they're like, I, I can't, I can't hang with that. Um, because yeah, like it's, 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 it's scary when members of your own community are like, eh, you're pretty expendable. I mean, yeah. I mean, the way I've kind of described it to someone recently was, um, uh, a typical, uh, mice or rat will explore and investigate something and go, oh, this is a really dangerous piece of knowledge. So we should probably put that away. So no one accidentally misuses that. And the cultural laboratory go, oh, this is a very dangerous piece of knowledge. So I want to see how big of a boom I can make with it. Yeah. 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 They have a, a kind of flagrant disregard for the safety of their culture. They, they, also, they are not OSHA compliant. Yeah. But they also <laughs> give other mice and rats a bad name. Like, right. like I said earlier, like if 
your band of cats or dogs fought some laboratory laboratory cultists Mm -hmm. and then they might decide that all mice are like that which once again we've seen in the real world happen so that's something that like we don't put in there super explicitly but it's not hard to extrapolate it that like if you fight a bunch of laboratory cultists and you aren't really acquainted with other mice and rats then you might just think they're all like that Mm -hmm. um which is clearly not the case because a lot of them just want they, they they just want to live they just want to hang out and like do their jobs or be with their communities um so do you want to talk a little bit about the actual new um callings and everything since we've talked a lot about the culture uh yeah sure um so uh we do have uh, new callings um, unlike pirates pugmire all of these callings are specifically rodents addressed so we don't have new dog or cat callings these are all for rodents um and so we have the uh analysts uh, analysts are a rat mm-hmm. calling, which are specifically they're 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 strong psionicists. Um, they are basically scientists. They try to study the world and learn as much as about it as they possibly can. Uh, there are the psychics, which are the mouse equivalents of that. Um, they're also strong uh, psionicists, but they're much more about uh, uh, emotional intelligence than um, you know book knowledge. Uh, so um, mm-hmm. they tend to be more on the the healing side, but also uh, some more visceral. I mean, some of their uh, psychic powers are also pretty body horror grotesque as well. And so it's not they're not just cute little healers; they also can be pretty brutal in their own right if they, they want to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are the rascals, which are the kind of dashing cavalier mice. Um, th- these are definitely your kind of uh, leap into the middle of a bunch of. Uh, uh, enemies with a rapier style of mouse. That's me. That's you. Um, but also <laughs> uh, a bit more of the the jester. They're they're not sneaky so much as uh, uh, they're more more charming, more uh, uh, grandiose than your typical kind of thief or rogue. Yeah, yeah. No, I I definitely so that's that's the one that I modeled the most off of my favorite childhood mouse, Reepicheep. From Chronicles mm-hmm. of Narnia, uh, because Reba Cheap in the illustrations had a big cavalier hat and a rapier. Yes. And he was always challenging things that were much larger than him. Um, and so I just decided that, like, once I saw kind of what Eddie wanted out of that class, I was like, well, y- y- you know who I'm going to model this off of, right? Like, it's going to be Reba Cheap, because I freaking, like, I was, I was a huge Chronicles of Narnia fan when I was a kid. It's a total segue. I don't care. Um, That's fine. And I. The first time I ever cried at a book is at the end of book three when Reaper Cheap like sails off into the sunset. Oh no. And I was crying so hard. I was like six or seven. And my mom was like, What's wrong? And I was like, Reaper Cheap left. <laughs> <laughs> never gonna come back. And then of course he actually does come back later. Um, but right. like my like little set like seven-year-old brain, that was the first time I had been super upset by what I thought was a character death. Oh wow! And I will always remember that. Like I was, I was like inconsolable for like half an hour when I read it. Um, and of course, now looking back at it, I'm like that was a kids' book. But man, it 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 hit weird for me at that point. It might have been the first book I read that had like death as a thing that could happen. So yeah, yeah. I told you that. But yeah, so I had to model uh, model the rascals off. Reap the cheap. And it's, it's um, for me, uh, I was also thinking a little bit of, um, again, Grace Mouse, Great Mouse Detective, because, you know, of course, it's going to be my cultural cartoon mouse cut touchstone. Of course. Um, but uh, uh, some of Radigan's uh, subordinates, the mice were much more the, you know, jovial drunks, whereas his mm-hmm. rat subordinates were much more 
where we're going to the ruffians, which are the other rat right. uh, calling I have. Um, they're strong and tough and they're, you know, basically they're thugs, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, they, they're sometimes well-meaning thugs, mm-hmm. uh, but these are the rats that will scrap and fight because they feel like that's the best way to, to get what they need to survive or get their friends to survive. Then there's uh, strategists, uh, which are rats that are cunning tacticians. So this is the actual Radigan analog. Yeah. Um, they're schemers, they're plotters. Um, uh, uh, the, you know, in, in D&D terms, they're your warlords uh, in terms of trying to help uh, uh, organize people and make sure they're being efficient. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's the trickster, which are the mice that are much more the the traditional rogue, um, but uh, uh, they're more um, witty. Like, like the the um, the rascals are charming, tricksters are witty, and, and that's the distinction kind of between the two. Um, yeah, a a trickster would be more like what Wesley from Princess Bride or somebody. Yes, mm-hmm. where he like fights with his his word as much as his blade. Right. And whereas the rascal just would just kind of dive right in and uh, like um, uh, uh, the rascal is, is more Deadpool, I think, in personality. Um, yeah, maybe <laughs> a little more kind of kicking the door. Why the hell? I'm here. We're doing this. Um, and they're going to be fast and elegant and, and moving, but not necessarily subtle. Um, whereas a trickster is the kind of person that will spend days figuring out the best practical joke or trap. Yeah, and also they they often, as I think I I, I put in the thing, like they they don't resort to violence quite as easily as like mm-hmm. rascals do. They're like, I could just trap that person, and then right. they could be useful, as opposed to like a rascal who's just like, I will run them through with my blade. Right. Um. Once again, Lasso Snapdale, my favorite mouse <laughs> I've ever played in my life. It's the best mouse ever. I will bring him back anytime. <laughs> he is too much fun to play. It's fun to run. Let me tell you that too, because it's like I need to give the characters a reason to do this, and and you're like halfway through before I can even finish the explanation. I'm like, oh, cool, great, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's just it. Like he just he just wants adventure. Like he is mm-hmm. he is he is Seahawk from Shira. You know, it's like adventure. Yes, um, I will kick down the door. <laughs> it is actually interesting how many of the callings do map to Shira characters now that we the third third or fourth time it's come up is like oh yeah because like um the analyst is in Traptra, you know <laughs> oh yeah well i mean it, it it depends on how you play them but sure. i think that ever was definitely playing an entrapta <laughs> style rat in our in our uh, game the other day because they do such a good job with that whole like super intense i'm just going to tell you about logic kind of thing mm-hmm. um it's not, it's not really about right or wrong. It's just about, you know, hey, logically, you should just leave this fight because we're bigger than you and you should leave. And that's just like, okay, okay. Right. I have seen that character before and they are in Trapta. And, and it's actually one of the things that uh, in the last playtest, and, and I'm, I'm sure you probably put the link into the show notes to the video. But um, Oh, yeah. Um, one of the things I did for the first one is I gave everyone a specific characters. So I wanted to get as much breadth of concepts as possible because it was a really hardcore rules test. Um, for the last one, I let two of the players just make whatever characters they want to, not knowing what the other characters are going to be. Um, and so we did get two uh, rat analysts. And I was excited because they were very different characters, even though yeah. mechanically they had the same setting. Because um, we talked about um, uh, uh, Ever's character, um, uh, which is uh, Parsley. Uh, Parsley Short Tail. Parsley Short Tail is very much the, um, I need to explain everything to you uh, and believes that everyone's as interested in, in this information as as parsley is 
um, which is one distinct style of that. And then uh, uh, Joshua Deitch played um, Mr. Doctor, who was a former member <laughs> of the cult, cult of Laboratory. Um, and so he was straight up, you know, twisted science. He was very you know, weird. Dr. Frankenstein style character who's trying to do good, but doesn't quite understand how that's supposed to go out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and they did not feel like the same character during the gameplay at all, either mechanically or in roleplay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of depth in these callings still, which, which to me is a good spot. And that's something that when we worked on it, a couple of times I've asked you to write callings now, it's been some form of, okay, let's, you know, pull this out, compress this down. Cause you have to find the right balance of focus and depth in a calling because it has to be like you immediately go and go, Oh, I, I know like three characters that fit in there, but also mm -hmm. realizing that, Oh, but those are three pretty distinct characters. Why don't you sit down and really think about them? You can also make them so different with like their, their backgrounds and things. Um, mm -hmm. Cause we, as always, we introduce new backgrounds. Yep. Um, although you can pick a few from like Meyer monarchies aside from, I think the two religious ones and noble. Cause there aren't right, rat noodles. Noodles. Yeah. That's, that's the thing about, about right, 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 right society is that it, it's pretty socialist the way I wrote it. Mm -hmm. Like every now and then somebody will put themselves up as like the rat king, but there could be like eight of them and right. none of them are actually the king of the rats. Uh, so the new backgrounds that we did were uh deep dweller where they live literally under the monarchies or Pugmire. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in the underneath for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, we have field rodents who grew up outside of it, and then we have refugees who, you know, fled to the monarchies or Pugmire, um yep. for for whatever reason. So often they are a little like disillusioned, etc. But um, but that was that was fun to write because like I figuring out ways to differentiate their backgrounds when they all kind of have the same culture was really interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think it made sense in the end. Like there are some that just don't really go to the surface at all that much. Right, and also there's a, um, an interesting uh, uh, flavor that comes with that because, again, like with um, with Pungmire, background was pretty much your way of determining your, your cultural upbringing. I mean, right. uh, you had breeds, but those are very much what family you're born into. Um, and I think uh, um, over time, I've kind of tweaked and adjusted that because originally they were very clearly race analogs. You were born an elf, and so you had these bonuses. And then over the years, as I put more books out, that has shifted to being some cultural stuff, but still with Pugmire, it's like there's a, again, Pugmire has a monoculture. Um, mm -hmm. And so really, it's a, it's a small tweak of how that monoculture works. And then otherwise, it's, did you grow up in the church? Did you grow up as a, a knight? Whatever. Right. And with uh, Mao, you have two different sets of backgrounds, really, because you have both the house, because one gives you one background, and then um, whether you are loyalist to your house or whether you are kind of the world who's not really connected to that house anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the, you have these six categories and then the initial layer of, but are you really that connected to it or not? Um, so with, with the mice and rats, uh, uh, the three backgrounds are really just, where did you grow up? And it, again, reinforces that you're still rodents. You still work on the same rules mm -hmm. basis. And you still a lot of the same cultural things, but you have three different distinctions that could cause you to, have some very different viewpoints on the world. Yeah, and just different skills, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, important on some level. Because you don't want everybody to have, have the same skills. That's not fun. Right. But I mean, like, um, uh, uh, for there's little things that, uh, like, for example, the refugee, one of the things you get in your rucksack is a map of the city you live in, which makes sense. You know, it's like it's where you live. Uh, and the field rodent, you have a nature guide. So, again, a way to kind of 
documentation of where you live and understand mm -hmm. it. Uh, the Deep Dweller does not have any of this stuff. You have a grappling hook um, because the underneath is not a place that you can easily uh, map out or navigate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you need tools. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about this. Let's talk about uh, the psionic powers a little bit, and then we can get on to the underneath. So okay. you chose to introduce psionics in this. Yep. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your reasoning behind that or which powers you chose to introduce? I I know you worked pretty well with Travis about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, um, psionics initially was uh, kind of a bugbear because, again, uh, I think I've talked about this in another podcast, but um, Pugmire at its core was kind of my stab at my nostalgic view of tabletop role playing games. Yeah, this is in some level the D and D I remember playing when I was a kid. Uh, even though mm -hmm. having gone back to AD and D, that is a bad idea. I mean, I, AD and D is not a bad system. It's just that it's it's my tastes have definitely changed from when I was playing AD and D. Uh, but one of the things that has come up over the years is psionics never quite work right. And so I was like, well, I'm going to have a game with psionics. Um, but as a fantasy quasi sci-fi game it's like psionics makes sense but I never quite figure out where to fit them in and at an early stage i had imagined that magic and psionics would be identical so basically the dogs need to casting magic spells but it's actually psionic powers mm -hmm. um in development that fell away but i, so I still still have this idea and then with the cult of laboratory being the the natural extreme of society it's okay but that means that the cultists all had psychic powers very explicitly psychic powers um so just be, they can't be the only ones with psychic power necessarily. You know, other rats and mice might have them. Uh, and so, and again, the first for knowledge that is a key cart of Rodin society maps really well with psionic powers in terms of a, just a, a feel. Mm -hmm. It's like the, these are not magic spells. These are, this is somehow science that you have uncovered. Science. Uh, and so, uh, I had all that, but then in the middle of that, it's like I did not want psionic powers to be a radically different set of rules. I wanted people who had played Pugmire and Monarchies and Mal and played with the magic system to kind of go, okay, this is basically magic, but with a different twist. Um, so I was trying to find ways to come to that balance. Uh, and so uh, I had approached uh, Travis Legg. Um, and I was like, hey, here's the problem I have. Here's what I want to do. I'm not sure how to approach it. 5e doesn't really have a strong psionic system, so we need to build something. And then he was like, well, funny you should mention that, but for the DMs Guild, I actually did a psionics book. Here you go. And I was like, oh, so can <laughs> we just use this? Uh, and initially it was just, we'll just use this. But then as uh, he did some draft, as he did a draft and we started going through it, there were some changes I wanted to make to make it more appropriate to uh, Pugmire. And most of it was tonal stuff um, to make sure that the flavor felt more. Because the, the, the flavor I settled on was I wanted science through the lens of medieval surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't want to have things like quantum uh, you know, in the, in the language or whatnot. Um, so, you know, using things like the medieval humors as a basis for the language, um, mm -hmm. you know, churgens, um, uh, autonomic shunt is the name of power, for example. So like, you know, using that kind of, uh, of old school medical language, you know, it's like, I like, you can go up to like, say maybe the early Victorian era in terms of language is kind of the, the cap of, of where I want the tone to hit. Yeah, all the stuff that my character had for psionics was like mental ray and mind scan and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, which which makes sense. Right. I mean, if it was like so general that 
uh, uh, comic modern day comic books can use it. I was like, I felt like that was also fine because then it's enough of a cultural touchstone that when rights and my sort of researches that probably would have come across that language, but I, I wanted to avoid specifically technological language. Um, and then the other piece of it was that um, when we started doing initial discussion and some just playtesting by myself at my desk, I realized that psionics were just objectively better because they were completely silent. Um, they were all mental mm -hmm. powers. And so uh, and on top of that, things like dispel magic wouldn't work against them because they're not magic. So, Rodents would have a distinct advantage over uh, cats and dogs. And that led to two pieces. The first of which was from a cultural perspective, um, rodents may be recognizing to a degree that their powers are superior and that if dogs and cats caught on, they would probably be captured and used as assets by these mm -hmm. kingdoms and cultures. So there's a kind of cultural thing of we don't talk about this around non-rodents, which is pretty often violated. But... Um, if, again, I'm to your earlier analogy, if dogs hunt down a cultist or laboratory and they have weird powers and you meet these other mice in Pugmire and they have weird powers, well, maybe they're the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd i say that like on our other playtest where we did use it in public, it was one of those things where like we were fighting explicitly like five bad people mm -hmm. um, who were trying to hurt us. And I wouldn't explain it to them if they asked, you know, like, right. oh, it's just magic, just like what you have, you know, because right. like cats and dogs have magic. Like, we can also do this. I have a focus. Look at this ball I'm using to focus my power through, mm -hmm. even though you don't actually need that, obviously. Right. It's one of those things that, like, it's on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, it's pretty easy to cover up because I didn't want to be, I didn't want, like, a masquerade, like a vampire the masquerade where it's, like, going, it's punitive. I didn't want that, mm. but it's more of the, maybe think a moment before you just start slinging your massive powers out. Yeah. Um, and to tie with that, that leads to the other decision we made, which is that all mice and rats have a tell um, whenever you're using any of your powers something happens whether it's a strange smell or a strange sight your eyes glow um the, you know everything smells like cinnamon all of a sudden whatever but there's something that's obviously happening every time you use your powers so if someone was able to be around you long enough to recognize that every time this happens that happens and always happens when you're around they yeah. can theoretically put those pieces together and realize that you are the person that's doing that power so it's not immediate but over a long enough timeline a specific rodent will eventually be outed mm -hmm. so it's the case of like again um for people who are about to die soon not that big of a deal um if you're in an isolated location not that big of a deal but if you're in a crowded street and you know that there are people who are coming or hunting you down, maybe using your powers on a regular basis might not be the best tactical decision. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, it is cool that we went, I, I think that we went with that. And also that the tell can be a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. Like it has to be kind of obvious, but it can be everything from like glowing eyes to your fur all stands on end to it smells like cinnamon, like Eddie said. So like there's, right. there, there's so many different ways to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 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 fun to me because it's like an and, extra layer of character creation. And the other piece of this is also um, uh, uh, part of the tell is you can't conceal it. So like if like say you have glowing eyes but you wear sunglasses, then the glow will go around the sunglasses. You you can't hide this. Um, but also if you can't perceive your own tell, then you can no longer use powers. Mm -hmm. So if um, to use Laszlo as an example, um, if Laszlo became anosmic and couldn't smell anymore and can't smell that cinnamon smell, then Laszlo suddenly realizes that he can't use his own powers anymore. Oh, Laszlo. Yes. So Laszlo is very protective of his nose. Oh, Laszlo. He's so cute. <laughs> I love him so much. Um, 
Yeah, no, t- t- totally. And that's, that's, that's interesting and important. And also maybe you have to develop a different tell or something, you know? I mean, if it's a permanent situation, then yeah, obviously over time you would develop a new tell. Um, but uh, it allows other non-rodent characters to have find creative ways to shut down psychic powers. But it mm-hmm. does require them to think for a moment. It's not just a simple kind of – I think there is, we do have a spell that's like anti-psychic powers that some characters can learn. But in general, you have to be a little smart to shut down a rodent. But if you do, then you can shut it down completely. Yeah. So I have a I have a question for you and that mm-hmm. and you don't have to answer it. Okay. But I was going to ask, do you have an in-world explanation for psionics? Because I know that we've talked about, you know, dogs and cats and all their stuff is actually a technology and this, that, and the other. But like how does psionics work? Um, so um I'll actually uh, go into a little bit about just kind of the, my grand's unifying theory of magic and then how psionics fit. Okay. That. All right. Um because it's something I don't, I don't like putting in books, but I don't mind necessarily talking about. Um, so, uh, so, so artisans for dogs, um, they generally are tool users. Um, they find objects and then they use those objects to, to get power. Um, over time, increasingly, the dog, the things a dog can do don't seem to always make sense with the object they have. And that's intentional because it is to a certain degree, they're able, they're subconsciously manipulating very complicated technology. But they do have to find a specific object that calls to them, which is just mm-hmm. a, a metaphor of saying that they are subconsciously recognizing and c- c- tapping into the fact that this is very advanced technology. And uh, for shepherds, uh, they have they have to take this uh, elixir as part of their uh, call or part of their uh, initiation, um, and, and that elixir allows them to, to channel man's divine grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of this is because dogs are flooded with nanites. Um, to the point where if they uh, breed new dogs, the nanites actually come along with them as part of the birthing process. Um, so dog DNA is just intrinsically linked with these nanites. And so some dogs can find objects that connect those nanites and cause them to release power that way mm-hmm. and, ch- and manipulate those objects. Whereas with shepherds, they get a, a different infusion of nanites that allows them to unlock those powers inside of them. Um, cats are different in the sense that they are hackers. Uh, they, 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 they get power from breaking things down. Um, so mancers generally, uh, they, they channel thing, through things that are dead. Uh, and that's because they're taking the nanites from other creatures and subconsciously absorbing them into themselves to use. Uh, for, so f- uh, for ministers... This is going to um, like blow some people's minds. Oh, yeah. I say that uh, right yeah. now. Like there, there are people <laughs> who are listening to this, this episode right now who have played Pugmire for like two years and are like, nanites? What? I love it. I love it. It gets even better. Um, uh, so uh, uh, ministers, uh, in the same similar way that um, shepherds, uh, they, they, they have to take this infusion, but then they can be more generally useful. Um, the ministers, uh, as a result of their training, are able to actually focus these nanites uh, into their throat, which is why all of their stuff is uh, vocally organized, because they're able to focus the power through the, uh, the resonation of their vocal cords. Um, but the reason why mancers can get their power is because dead things also have nanites infused in them. Um, and that's how we get to the undead is because, um, they're not, they're still dead. Those are still corpses walking around. It's just that the nanites have awakened and are actually puppeting the bodies. I love this. Um, so, and that ties into my theory of the unseen, which I watch and won't go into because that is a, a deep setting secret. Um, but this leads to uh, rodents is that because rodents were more explicitly experimented on while man was around, they have 
larger uh, uh, stores of these nanites in their bodies uh, and therefore can more use them. But also with dogs and cats, it was part of their package. They were uplifted and given these things for very specific goals. Like dogs are meant to do these things and cats are meant to do these mm -hmm. things. So they were given a very specific package of nanites. Um, rodents were just experimented on. And a lot of the things that dogs and cats developed came from original rodent technology. So it's early beta technology, but it's also very wide spectrum. So okay. all the tells are where the nanites are failing because they can't do it completely. They have to do something because there's, a, there's some inherent error to each rodent's own nanites. That's why the tell comes from. Aww. But every rodent can learn something because they all have that potential. And because they have a culture specifically designed to help to unlock that potential, uh, uh, all, all of them at least have a wider chance. Whereas with dogs and cats, it's usually a specialized train that can actually unlock that ability. Yeah, same with like birds and lizards and stuff. Right. But because these are two different generations of nanites, that's why they're incompatible on a mystical level. Because it would be like um, Linux and Windows trying to operate together. It's possible but it takes a lot of work and very specialized knowledge, most of which is gone. That makes me so happy. I love that. I love that so much. So yes, I've, I've thought way too much about fictional dog and cat magic. And keep in mind, if you're playing this, this is knowledge that you need to keep in your own head. Your dogs right. and your cats and your mice and whatever will not know they have nanites because they can't see them because they don't have that kind of technology. Right. Um, so yeah, that is that is fascinating though. Although I... I could see working it into like something where somebody has developed kind of like a proto microscope and they're like, yeah, there's weird shit in my blood, but maybe that's just normal for them. You know, like they don't realize it's weird. Right. Because like what do I have to compare it to. Yeah. Like, well, I, I have weird shit in my blood and I look at another dog. Well, it's the same weird shit. So maybe it's just what blood looks like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but one of the clues to all of this um, is the fact that dogs, cats, and rodents all speak the same language, even though mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about how all these Different cultures sometimes are not communication for long periods of time. They still speak the same languages because they're all programmed with the same language. Is it is it Esperanto? <laughs> I, I have joked it is Esperanto, but it is actually whatever language the player characters are speaking. Right. Whatever sure. you as players are speaking, that is the language that they have now learned. I like it. I like it a lot. That makes me happy. I've got a few minutes left. So let's talk a little bit about the underneath before we okay. uh, sign off. What is the underneath, of course, and how are we representing that in the book? The underneath is everything underground. The end. No. Um, okay. Done. Podcast over. <laughs> thank you for playing. Uh, or can find you online. No. Um, <laughs> no, the underneath is, uh, like I said earlier on, it's kind of my take on a mega dungeon. Um, I, as When I grew up, I liked the idea of things like... Um, uh, Frat and Realms, uh, Underdark, um, or just big, mm. massive dungeons that you could spend <clears throat> months of real world time playing in. Uh, but from a design perspective and from a play perspective, those can get really, there's lots of boring bits in the middle of those. Um, and you have huge, sprawling maps of which only maybe a small percentage of it is actually interesting parts of the adventure. Um, and there's this particularly because uh, I was running a, an old school D&D uh, &D game um, because I was using an old D&D &D module that had sci-fi elements and I ran mm -hmm. it as a Pugmire game for uh, a charity event. And when I was converting it, I realized that a lot of the room encounters are, this is empty room, this is an empty room, this is an empty room, this is an empty room. And it's just like, this is boring and dull. Yeah. So instead, um, what, we design, what we develop as a team is I have what I call dungeon set pieces. Uh, so there's, I think, about eight or ten of them, which are just interesting chunks that themselves are anything from a couple of rooms to a small dungeon in their own right. 
uh, one of them, like the Cult of Laborator uh, uh, Stronghold, is basically a straight-up dungeon you could probably run as a whole session just by itself. Um, and there are others that are just like, here's a cave and a couple of other encounters around that cave. Mm-hmm. And then between that, you have just tunnels. And there are a whole bunch of tunnel encounters. Uh, and they're random. You can randomize them. You can pick them however you want to do it. But basically, there's just a whole bunch of tunnel encounters. And then there are also villages mm-hmm. between those tunnels. So it's you go to you go from a either Pugmire or Monarchy Samao or a, a village if you live underground. And then you go explore. You have a, a tunnel encounter or two. And then you go to one of the dungeon set pieces. And then you deal with that. And then you have another tunnel encounter or two. And then you have another set piece. And mm-hmm. you just keep doing that until the group goes, nope, I want to go ahead and go back. And then you just go back and go back through if you need to or whatever. But um, because the underneath is weird and unusual, um, uh, Rodents have been trying to map it forever, but they never have a cohesive map because it keeps shifting and changing. Partially because Rodent Society keeps building new things, partially because monsters and other enemies make new things, and partially because it's legitimately moving and no one entirely knows why. So rather than trying to map all of that, um, we'll just make it vague. It's like, okay, so you mm-hmm. twist and turn for a while and then you're now in this location. Okay. How do you get back? Uh, figure it out. Your adventures. Yeah. This is, this, this is post-apocalyptic by many, many, many posts. Mm-hmm. So like who, who knows how rocks work now? Right. <laughs> you know, like it is, it, it, it is a far futuristic, which I think people forget a lot because it's medieval looking. Right. Um, but then also it is like, you know, thousands of years possibly after the apocalypse or after all the humans left for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so shit might just work differently now. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like maybe, maybe tectonic plates all broke up into very small ones and they just slide around underneath. Yeah, or you know, it could be something like, you know, um, humanity found a way to uh, take certain crystallized structures and actually manipulate them on a, on a mm-hmm. subatomic level and just embed that into rocks so that they could cause rock to just change shape to make, you know, towers or buildings by a push of a button. And then they lost control of that. So now the rock is constantly moving around and shifting. That's one way to explain exactly. it. There's, exactly. There's, there's so many things you can do with that. Right. But the, but the, but that, I think, it goes to the kind of the the, the core uh, conflict and from a narrative or from a tonal perspective, I should say, with Pugmire is the fact that you can come up with any kind of sci-fi nonsense to explain it mm-hmm. in exactly the same way you can come up with any magical nonsense to explain it. They're identical from a from the same kind of narrative weight. So if you want to play Pugmire as pure fantasy and ignore all the sci-fi nonsense, you can. It doesn't change one jot what's actually happening in the game. It's just as opposed to everything I just said about nanites, it's the, okay, well, the fact that man somehow imbued all of these creatures with a certain kind of magical resonance that they can tap into and engage mm-hmm. in these ways I've already laid out. Or some kind of super serum. Like, mm-hmm. Captain America, you know, like that. Ooh, you can... Catman, Catman America. Catman America. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Catman Amyonica. Amyonica. Ooh, that's um, Yeah. Either way. No, we're not doing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the point is, whatever solution you come up with doesn't have to be Eddie's solution since we're not putting it in books. So it's not technically canon. It's just Eddie's right. headcanon. It's just my headcanon, yep. Um, so yeah, so does, where is the underneath? Does it stretch from Pugmire to the monarchy? Is it under the, the, the forest? Is it just below one or the other? Uh, so it is actually, um, underneath both and it does go underneath the forest. Um, there are, and, and this has always been the plan. So if you look at things like in Monarchies of Mal, uh, there's an, a location by the fearful forest that talks about an underground setting that cats train in, mm-hmm. uh, the core the monarchy of Korat. Um, and then occasionally a cat just goes missing. 
Um, and similarly, Oops. in Pug in Pugmire, the first adventure takes you underground with badgers, and then there's a part that's just kind of caved in, and the badgers are really vague about how, they they discover this area and they tunnel out more of it, but they kind of just are vague about what it was when they first found it there. Uh, so and that so there's always little clues throughout the various adventures to point to there is in fact one massive. Uh, network between both, uh, but it's so dangerous and so unreliable that dogs and cats would much rather try to go through a fearful forest than try to navigate the underneath. The only reason mm-hmm. why rodents have navigated is because they don't really have any other options. Yeah, yeah, they are more vulnerable on the road and the and the fear, fearful forest. Not to say that a party of adventure, you know, rodents couldn't go under there, but. But that goes, that goes back to what you're saying earlier in the sense that um, rodents kind of need to stick together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, from a PC party perspective, it's it's a very easy way to get a group together. Um, whereas with Pugmire and Monarchies of Mal, I had to come up with a conceit or a structure. Here is a group that your characters can join to the with squeaks mm-hmm. and deep. It's like your rodents, your options are stick together or not be rodents much longer. So guess what you're doing? Yeah. Although as as with pirates, you can of course put a rodent character into your dog or cat game or your Absolutely. pirate game or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you want to be a pirate crew of just all different animals, you can totally do that. Right. And if you want to be a party of mostly dogs, but like I said, I have a, I have a mouse that was orphaned and raised by dogs. And so they don't quite fit into mouse society. You can totally do that. Yep. We are here for that. Yeah, no, I I, I'm, I definitely have never wanted to have the kind of uh, soft walled garden approach of like classic world darkness where it's the, they can work together, but then they really work together. No, I wanted these to be looked together. If you want to have a group that's um, two dogs, two cats, a lizard, a bird, and a, a mouse. That's a huge gaming group. but It's, it's massive, fun. but you can do it. Um, <laughs> and Pirates of Pugmire, again, kind of alluded to that because, you know, even in there, they talk about mice and rats to a large extent in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, uh, so the stuff we're talking about is much more on a cultural level because right. I do feel like if you also make it just one big homogenous culture, we're all get together. That's not narratively interesting. There needs to be some some drama there. Uh, mm-hmm. And so by having dogs, as a general rule, don't aren't bad dogs for, for hating rodents. Um, some dogs are trained to hunt rodents. So it's like, that's what they think a good dog is being. Um, and some rats don't want to necessarily lord over mice. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, it's called rat king. So mm-hmm. maybe rats should be in charge because that's what we call that. Uh, so it, it's it's more of a cultural inertia, and unless a, a character, either player or non-player character, simply has to move away from that, that's generally the stream that things will go down. And if you follow that stream, things get complicated and dramatic. But mm-hmm. absolutely, player characters specifically, but also non-player characters can and should break away from those stereotypes because that's more interesting. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's 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 fun. That's a, that's a fun story. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're uh, sorry. I was just going to say one more thing um, uh, because I forgot to mention this underneath. Um, One of the things that we're also doing with this book is um, this is the first book that I would try to design. It's a little more virtual tabletop ready than previous books. Pugmire has always been much more a game of the imagination rather than a game about uh, tactics and exploration. But because of the nature of this book, it made sense to actually have things like a lot more maps. So one of the things we're doing and one of the things that we're prepping for when we get to Kickstarter is trying to have maps ready so that way 
when you get these set pieces, you can load it up on uh, uh, Astral or Roll20 and have tokens and be ready to go mm-hmm. and give you more reasons to do that. Um, and also we're going to, over time, get the other Pugmire stuff VTT ready too. So that's part of our plan. But this is the first book where one of the things we I did is, um, for example, it was Joshua that did the uh, a lot of the set pieces. And so I actually mm-hmm. asked him to draw maps um, so we can get maps. So it's not like... like Pirates Pokemon, we have like a couple of maps. It's going to be, there's going to be like a lot of maps for this game. And they're going to be available also so you can download and, and use as needed. So th- that's another that's big awesome. piece of this that's different from everything else we've done. Yeah. Also, aren't there like several encounters in the book or yeah. adventure type things? Unlike mm-hmm. our other kind of cores, which have like one or two. Is this more yeah, like yeah, Pirates where it has a few? We, we have one, right. We have, the, rather than having three distinct adventures that link together, we have all these mini adventures and then we have one bigger core adventure and that has an explicit pugmire and monarchy start so Mm -hmm. if you're playing in pugmire or playing in the monarchies you pick one of those two starting points you play through a couple of scenes and then those funnel into the actual underneath and then you can play through the underneath adventure and if you wanted to you could even theoretically have two groups where you have a couple of dog players a couple of cat players they each play their own side of it and then they meet up in the middle and then they band together to actually go through the rest of the adventure that would be so cool. I would I'm love that. see how it plays out. Yeah, so we're about a time. So is uh, is there any other one thing from Squeaks in the Deep that you want to mention before we uh, sign off? Uh, about the only other thing I want to mention is uh, enemies. We have a lot more new uh, yes. enemies in here. They're creepy as hell. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, uh, ever is, is a lot. We were playing at Virtual Horicon, and so Pugmire was, you know, like, oh, it's the fun Pugmire book. Um, but then uh, everyone was like, no, this is the creepiest one I've played. I, I, I play Cult, and this is way creepier. So I feel like we got the tone of creepy right with these monsters. Um, uh, so so uh, one of the things that we're also interested in this is the idea of uh, cinematic actions. Um, so uh, because, especially in an underground campaign, it, it could get very samey really fast. Okay, here's another... 20 by 20 room um, and there's a monster in it and you fight it and you kill it and you go to another 20 by 20 room. Uh, so we do have these things called cinematic actions where certain characters can enact things that change the environment or change the scenario or change the setting. Um, so if um, like the one we just did yesterday, uh, I added a, a, a pool of liquid um, that was actually a pool of nanites, um, but uh, it was <gasps> a silver liquid. That's what that was. Yes, yeah, that, that's why you're, <laughs> they were they were they were all heal oriented nanites. Um, but uh, so there's a pool of strange silvery liquid, and there's a half made monster that's invisible that attacks them. It's like okay, so we have to kind of fight around this pool and then what do we do with it? And of course, in, like smart player characters, they avoided it until they realized, oh wait, maybe it's a good thing. And then, they, oh wait, this thing heals us. It's great. So we, we love this. Um, but that changes the tenor of a fight depending on how you approach it. So that's another thing we're introducing into it. But yeah, the enemies are really fun. There's uh, they are uh, um, strange and outre uh, elements to it and also we're, we're getting more into uh the cult of laboratory because um they were the core antagonists or one of the antagonists for uh, monarchies map but they are probably the core antagonist uh for this but also one of the things that we worked on is that we didn't want the cult to be the answer to everything so there's a lot of other strange things happening around besides the cult the cult is just an easy uh starting point to get into so basically uh, like for the core adventure the cult is going to be a big piece of it but they're not 
the final boss, if you will. So there's other stuff going on under the, under the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think that if I had to mention anything, like I, one thing I loved about working for, um, on pirates and then also working on squeaks is the need to occasionally reverse engineer something that was like mentioned in other books, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there'll be like, like all the other books have, um, mice in them at right. some point we have the rat king adventure right yeah and 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 so i was writing a little short section and it's such a random section but it's like naming conventions yeah so i was i was looking at at these names because we have uh cola and mika and i forgot the other one but we have these 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 mice and i'm like like what do these names have in common um because cats and dogs have pretty specific naming conventions based on both their names and their breeds and this that and the other and i'm like mice don't really have that like they just have a bunch of random families and names and also if they're anything like they are in real life they might have a million kids um Mm -hmm. (laughs) so there there could just be like you know 90 deep wood siblings um, mm-hmm. so I, I did it after places or possibly looks, but also I got to point out that they often don't have sibilants in their names because they're a little hard to say because mice have big front teeth. Yeah. And that makes me happy, especially since I then went on to immediately create a character with a sibilant in their name. <laughs> just, just so I could go Laszlo, Laszlo Schnapptail. Um, because I think it's fun to have a little bit of a, of a, of a, funny way to talk when you're doing a mouse sure Uh, and also as somebody that grew up with big buck teeth until i had um braces i I very much appreciate their their plight of not being able to say certain things yeah so yeah it's a it's a silly thing it's a fun thing it's it's a side note but i i had a lot of fun with it yeah and that's one of the things that i'm glad you did because with um pirates pongmire we had pretty much a blank slate i copied i was able to copy and paste like all the text relevant to it it was not much of it for each of those Mm -hmm. and so you were kind of just like inventing things but whereas with this uh, um frankly it was a lot of stuff done that was to be honest done inconsistently so you're able to reconcile all of that uh and that's something i knew going in was going to be a challenge and and the fact you're able Mm -hmm. to kind of just do more than just yeah well they just make stuff up and actually adding things like that that bit about the syllabus was really 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 helpful and it it very much helps to pull it all together and again the illumination for shiny's thing really helped recontextualize things in a very cool way that I think people who've read the books are going to go, oh, this is a whole new take, but it doesn't invalidate my past knowledge. And that's a really great spot. To be. Well, yeah, because like the other books perspectives have been from the perspective of cats and dogs. Yep. So as far as they're like, they might all think that mice and rats are greedy because they hear them talking about shinies or they've like heard this that, and the other, but they also just don't know what it means mm-hmm. because they're not, they're not part of that culture and they haven't learned yet. Um, and if they do learn, then that's cool. And they can all talk and hang out together and have a good time. But if they don't learn, then they're just going to keep thinking their, you know, kind of stereotypical thoughts about that group. Right. And it also encourages people who, if they've read all the books, then they can, they can have that deep knowledge. But if you just pick up one of them and start playing, then there's, gives you something to explore and other people who've played the other books go, oh yeah, and there's this and this. It gives you something to talk about as opposed to laying it all out in front and go, okay, well, I know it all. So I don't have to, anything to explore anymore. Yeah, Totally. Well, that was a lot of fun. I, I didn't. It was. I didn't know we were going to talk this long. This is great. Uh, <laughs> Usually, it's like forty minutes of topic, and then like twenty minutes of digression. But we actually got almost. We're almost in the on topic the whole time. Yeah, so. yeah. It's 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 almost like both of us really like this book we worked on. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Eddie, if people want to ask you questions about Squeaks in the Deep or other Pugmire projects, can they find you right now? Um. Yes. Um, <laughs> 
I, I, I was I was briefly elusive on social media, but um, now I'm I'm pretty committed to uh, back on Twitter at Pugsteady, um, and also you can find me at Pugsteady.com. You can find out more about Pugmire at realmsofpugmire.com, and of course you can find me usually hanging out at the Onyx Path Discord Pathcast channel. Yeah, and there's also a Realms of Pug- a Pugmire channel if you want to ask questions. Yeah, it's true. There. You can hang out there too. You can hang out in so many places. So many places. Uh, as always, you can find me at Dixie Cyanide on most social media, DixieCochran.com. You can find us at theonyxpath.com, the Onyx Path on most social media, twitch.tv slash theonyxpath, discord, etc., etc., etc. I'll put links in the show notes as always. And as always, as I just said, it's going to sound really weird now. Many worlds. Breaking. One path cast. <laughs>